There's been a lot going on in our country that we can see in the news. A lot been going on in the last two months, and I'm certain there's been a lot going on in each of our lives with family, with work, uh, money, sickness. There's always a lot going on. And so today, we're going to take kind of a pause. We're going to kind of evaluate and assess where we're at uh, spiritually, individually. Where are we at? As you see from when Max read from their passage, we're looking at the birth of Christ. And so far in Luke, we saw John the Baptist and Jesus kind of run parallel, right? You get message to Zechariah, message to Mary. They intertwine. Elizabeth goes to, or Mary goes to Elizabeth. Now they're going separate again where John is born. Now we see Jesus born. So we see these stories running parallel. But now it picks off where, as John has been the front runner, and he will continue to point to Christ, Jesus just elevates, and it starts here with his birth. We saw uh, Gabriel announcing this royalty is coming, this royalty is coming. So we see that today. And I'm not, uh, I, I realize that most of us here have heard this account dozens of times, maybe every Christmas, if not more than that, this, the birth of Christ. So I want us to, to I pray we look at this afresh, anew. And that we see this, this good news, the angel says. The good news. The gospel. And so as I said, we're, we're going to take kind of a time to assess where we're at. What is the, the good news to you? What is the good news to you? And let me throw some questions out to begin with, just to get our minds going as we look at this. So what has the gospel come to you? Has the good news become old news? Where you hear it so often, you become kind of, it's kind of a doll, where it goes in one year out the other, you no longer have this, or you don't longer sense this weight of your own sinfulness and unworthiness, and accordingly, you don't have any longer a sense of rest and grace and peace rush over you when you contemplate the gospel and the cross. Or has the good news become like third page news? It's no longer on the front page of the news. It's no longer the headline. Rather, it's, it's in the middle. It's in, in the third part, the third page of the, the newspaper, where it's no longer in your life worthy of the front page. Something has taken its place, has taken priority. Or has the good news become more or less like fake news or unbelievable news? Maybe you never believed it, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes. Or maybe as a believer... Recently, you may have been delving in some sin that you never thought you would, ever. And there's just a sense of shame, and you're asking, how could God forgive me? And lastly, maybe the good news has just become news that we virtue signal on social media, that we just kind of post on Facebook, kind of, yep, uh, something about Jesus or a Bible verse, but we don't allow it to affect any other areas of our life. It's just something we post. And so today, we're going to look at that good news. And I want us to keep these questions in mind. Where am I at? What has the good news become to me? Has it become old news? Has it become third page news? Has it become fake news or unbelievable news to me? Or has it just become news that I virtue signal on social media and disinfect any other area of my life? I know it's kind of, it's kind of a hefty thing, but don't forget this is good news that we're looking at today. The birth of Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. The Savior, the Christ, the Lord. And so we're going to break this section up as it is in three parts. Number one is the birth. 
Number two is the, the good news. And number three is the response. Birth, good news, response. So here we go. If you don't have your Bible open or your iPad, iPod, whatever, uh, there's a Bible in the front. Caleb, I'm looking at you. You don't have anything in your hands. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you. Page 805 is Luke chapter 2. You'll find where we're at. Page 805. So here we go. This first part is the birth. Verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I'm getting excited. This is good stuff. Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when, I don't even know that word. Max said it very well. Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own house. You might be like, wow, this is as dry as it can be. I feel like I'm back in school in history class. Well, good news, because remember, Luke is very painstaking about these interviews. He, you can see Luke, the historian, coming through here. And what can we grab from this? Our faith is reasonable. It is enrooted in history. It is reality. And Luke is making that known. He does this all throughout Luke, as well as Acts, which he wrote, the second volume. He ties it. Yep, this is happening during this king. This has happened during this governor. Like, this is tied to history. This happened. This is factual. So we see that here. And what he, he ties it to is this decree from Caesar Augustus. As you can imagine, when you, you can hear the government doing something, a decree, what is it for? Can you guess? It's for taxes. They're, they're getting decreed to go so they can get registered for taxes. And that's what's going on here. Um, a little background. Caesar Augustus, uh, Caesar being like uh, the title president or emperor, and Augustus isn't his name. It's another kind of title, meaning reverend or respectful. This Caesar, his actual name is Octavian. I don't know if you remember uh, European history, Octavian. Um, he was kind of held up high as kind of uh, the emperor of peace because he ascended to the throne during a time of dis- disrupt in the, in, the, in the empire for like 20 years. So he was known for the, the, the emperor of peace and he ushered in the Pax Romana. I mentioned that before. The Pax Romana, about 200 years of peace, relative peace in the Roman Empire. It's interesting because the real emperor of peace in the story is the baby that's born, Jesus. And you see this kind of contrast. This emperor who's known as the emperor of peace, but really is a Jesus who is the emperor of peace. And this continues. The, the key historical figure in this isn't this possibly the the leader of the superpower at that time, it's actually the little baby that's born that's almost no one knows about in the beginning. That's who is the historical figure. One other thing before we move on, I want you to notice here, is that God is completely sovereign that a couple from Nazareth towards the north side of Israel is going to go back to Bethlehem, which is massively important because there's prophecies, Micah, which we'll read, that says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. How often do you just take a daily trip to go to Florida or something ridiculous? Right? That's not something you just go on. So this trip, this, the probability of Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem while they're Nazareth is not very probable whatsoever. But yet, God sovereignly made it happen that a couple from Nazareth went to Bethlehem. God is sovereign. He even is sovereign over the secular rulers. He accomplished his will. He did it with Assyria. He did it with Babylon. He did it with Egypt. He did it with Persia. And no doubt he does it today. Proverbs says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
our sovereign God. He's sovereign over uh, non-Christian kings, presidents, prime ministers, dictators, terrorists, all of them. He's sovereign. So that's the very layout. This historical figure, the emperor, Caesar Augustus, but it's all in this, this backdrop of there's this, this, this kid born, that he's really what we're looking at. So we're moving on. Verse 4, he says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Uh, geography. He went up. If you're, if I just, I don't know if I did a really good job of showing a map here with my hands. Uh, Nazareth's up north. Bethlehem's near Jerusalem, down south. Usually we say, hey, I'm going to go up to Canada, right? For whatever reason, up is equated to north. What they're talking about is elevation. Jerusalem is up. So whenever you, you read in the prophets everywhere, it's always up to Jerusalem because it's on a hill, Mount Zion, a mount. So it's always up. So that's that. That might not be interesting to you, but it comes up a ton of times. But so they go to Bethlehem. And as I said, this is of massive significance. Micah chapter 5 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This prophecy of the one to come who is coming from Bethlehem. I'm going to take a quick aside for a second. You have probably realized, since we started in Luke, and even when we were working up to Resurrection Sunday, Easter, that we've been looking a lot or I've been referencing a lot of the Old Testament, right? You maybe have realized that. I've been bringing a lot of the Old Testament in there. And there's multiple reasons for that. Let me lay these out quick, because I think this is important. Number one, it gives us confidence that God keeps his word. These prophecies that we're talking about is literally hundreds of years old. Hundreds. Empires have come and gone. But yet God keeps his word. We're looking at this because we... Get confidence that God's sovereignty is sovereign even in the minute things, like taxes, as we see here. Our faith, we see from all this, it's grounded in history. It's grounded in facts. It's not just a lollygagging, hopeful desire. It's grounded in history. We see from this that Jesus is the pinnacle of redemptive history. All of history, Jesus is the pinnacle. We see that with the Old Testament. They're looking forward to this king to come. And we look back to the king and the cross, and we look forward to him coming again. He is the pinnacle. We see that without the Old Testament, we cannot understand Jesus at all. We do not understand him if we do not have the Old Testament. So I keep on going back to the Old Testament because it tells us everything about Jesus. And then when we see how God brings it all together, it brings assurance of our faith, which is exactly why Luke is writing to Theophilus. Sure. So that's why I'm making a big deal about these Old Testament prophecies as Jesus is clearly, without even his power as being a baby, he's fulfilling these as we go. It's exciting. And let me, let me challenge you with this. If you hear this today, you hear about the birth of the Messiah, you hear about the birth of the Savior, the Lord, and it bores you. Because you feel it does not connect with your work job, your, your romance life, your financial life, whatever. Then we have some serious problems and we need to fix some things. Because this is Jesus the Lord. 
and he affects everything. And so follow with me. And I think when I say that, I think about myself too. Like, okay, where am I at? Assessing ourselves. Where are we at? So that's this side. Bring it back. And so it comes to Bethlehem, the city of David. Let me stop there. You have probably noticed, as I have, that Luke is making a massive deal, as well as Gabriel, about the city of David. David, David, these promises. All over we see this. Why? Because this is significant. Over and over, too, with Joseph, it's talking about his lineage with David. His lineage with David. Here again, he tells about the lineage with David. Luke does. Why? Because if you're not in the line to be king, you're not going to be king. Jesus is in the line to be king, and he is king. And so we see that. This is emphasized. All right, you ready? Uh, the last thing Luke notes here is the Mary has betrothed. Most likely, I believe Matthew brings this, they're already married. They're officially married. But Luke most likely says betrothed still, just to emphasize that she's still a virgin. They, has not, they have not consummated the marriage. Just to continue emphasizing this is a virgin birth. All right? It's all good? Moving on. Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came to her, I'm sorry, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So I read that. And if you were a father, I am sure your wife, if she was writing an autobiography, she would put a lot more than one sentence to her giving birth, right? There would be pages, yeah, it hurt so bad. It was horrible. He wasn't listening to me. I'm sure they would write a lot. But here, I want to emphasize, we see just this simple language. This king is born. This simple language. Unusual? No. Nothing spectacular. No royal clothes. No palace. No parties. Just a typical birth. And a low one at that. In a manger. Uh, literally, a feeding trough. So, like, I think of Ryan and Bob. I think anyone else has animals. Can you imagine giving a, a, a newborn... Going right with the chickens or the goats or the cows. Let's throw them in there and see what happens. An interesting thing I just want to add in there. Uh, and we, we, we sing about this. There is no room in the inn. And this talks about like a public shelter. What's interesting about that, keep in mind, they went back, Joseph went back to his home place, Bethlehem. No doubt he's got family there. No doubt he's got family there. And yet no one let him in. No one let him in. Most likely because of the stigma of Mary. She's pregnant. And they're not married. They haven't consummated the, the wedding. What's going on here? So no question, there's some stigma with that. And that's why there's no room. There's, their family did not, Joseph's family does not let him in. So the long-awaited king is born a lowly birth. Not much described. He's born in a, a room full of animals. Not in real clothing, but normal swaddling clothes. That's the birth, the birth of the long-awaited king, all right? That's part number one. Number two is the good news. And the scene kind of shifts, right? Here is Joseph and Mary. Now it goes to some shepherds. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. God is at work. And where is he at work? In the normal people, shepherds, normal working people. They're out in the fields, it says, at night. And being at night, uh, if you recall your time as a shepherd, I don't know, <laughs> it's kind of a joke. Uh, at night, or during the day, they're out in the fields eating, right? Trying to make sure they don't die, as they seem to be very susceptible to dying. It's interesting that we're always compared to sheep in the Bible. Keep that in mind. 
But at night, they bring them into sheepfolds, right? Because they can protect them a lot easier if they're kind of in a fenced-in area, and then the shepherd sits there in the opening, take out anything that comes in. So most likely the shepherds are there with the sheep. It's at night, and then all of a sudden, there's light. Quite a contrast to night, to the glory the Lord shone. What a contrast. And as we would be, there was great fear. What is going on? What is going on? And we see that with Gabriel, with Zechariah, uh, with Mary. If there's a heavenly being that comes, there's fear. There's fear. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swelling coloss and lying in a manger. So fear not. Almost remove that obstacle. God wants to connect with his creation. Uh, it's interesting. You can see that the angels are almost the first evangelists. There's good news. They're sharing the good news. An angel shares the good news for unto you. And there's, this is specifically individual. Speaking to the shepherds. For you, there's good news. For us today, for you listening, for you on the camera, there's good news for you. This day, that might not seem very uh, cool or meaning anything for us, but Luke uses it very specifically. This day, meaning something that we've been looking forward to for a long time, is finally realized right now, and that's today. That's what he, what's being said here. Today, we have good news. The birth of the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. We'll get to that right here, but first he says there will be a sign, swatting cloths and a manger. It's interesting that our king, our Messiah, he started in a, a, for all we know, a donkey's trough. And he dies with a bunch of thieves. He starts in solo and he ends solo in terms of death. That's our Lord, our Savior. But here's the good news. It's encapsulated in three words. Savior, Christ, Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord. Number one, here we go. Savior. I'm just going to briefly touch on each of these. Talk about the good news. Jesus is Savior. He's not merely a good teacher. He's not simply a moral guide. He's not just an example to live by. He's not just a counselor or therapist. He is our Savior. Buddha, Muhammad, today's religion of self-improvement, atheism, etc. are like the lifeguard. You're at the lake or at a pool. I know it goes in a second. Buddha, all these false teachers, the false gods, if you can say that, they're up on that high stand that they're at, right? Looking out there. You are up in the lake, you're up in the pool, and you're drowning. The water, you're, you're, you're just gulping in this water, you're trying to get air. And Buddha and Muhammad and all the this atheism, all they're saying is, hey, they're barking commands to you, just stay well in the water. Just try this, try this, do this, do this. Compared to Jesus, who sees you drowning, and he jumps in. He grabs you and he pulls you to the side. You're not breathing, he starts doing CPR. Still not breathing, he'll breathe for you. He's the Savior. He doesn't bark commands at you. He goes in and he saves you. He does what we cannot do. And it's interesting, to, in order to be, uh, in order to have good news of a Savior, we need to have some news that we need to be saved. So what do we need to be saved from? From our sin, from our rebellion against God, from our cosmic treason. In the U.S. today, 
you can still be punished with death for treason. And here with God, when we sin, the death or the punishment is death. We saw last week, Romans 3, Paul makes it very clear as he quotes Psalms. No one does good. No one is good. No one seeks God. No one is. If that's not enough, Isaiah says this. Isaiah 64, he says this. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If that's not enough, that word he uses for polluted garment are menstrual rays. Your righteous deeds are like used tampons, he's saying. You get this picture. This is We're in a bad state. The good news is not important unless you know the bad news. I know I have a family member, I have friends that you're just like, why do they not understand this? Why do they not trust in Christ? Or you know other people are like, why does it seem like Jesus is just an add-on or just not important? Why? I submit to you, it's because they don't believe the bad news. They don't believe that they need a Savior. And it's not just, oh, I can use this. You need a Savior. In the Old Testament, Savior was almost always referred to God. Second Samuel, I believe this is David. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge and my Savior, you save me from violence. In the New Testament, it's clearly applied to Jesus. Ephesians 5, Paul makes it clear. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Something else that's interesting? Caesar was called the Savior. He was always referred to, he's referred to as the Savior. But Jesus is the Savior, we hear. He is the Savior. So that's Savior. The good news, the three, uh, encapsulated, here we go. Three words. Number one is Savior. Number two is Messiah or Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, same thing, Christ, Messiah. Which means, both of them mean an anointed one. Which has connotations of royalty. We, as Americans, we inaugurate presidents, right? Other countries, or at least in history, they crown kings. Israel anointed their kings. That's how they kind of inaugurated their kings. This Messiah, this anointed one, is royalship. He is the leader. He is the king. What's interesting, they have not had a king for a while. In fact, they're being dominated by a foreign state, the Romans, Caesar. In fact, when the shepherds heard this from the, the angel, no doubt they're like looking over their shoulder, looking for Roman soldiers, because this is like treason. We talk about there's a, a king, a Christ. They're looking over their, sh- their, shoulder, their shoulders. But there's an ancient promise over a thousand years old to David that there will be a king on David's throne forever. A thousand years, roughly. They're ruled by a foreign emperor. Do you think hope has waned just a little bit that this is actually going to happen? But yet this angel says, good news, the Messiah, the Christ, is born the other good news, he's Savior, he's Christ, and number three, he's Lord. And this is incredible, and this is unthinkable, that God Almighty has come. Lord, 
in the Old Testament is Jesus, uh, is, is God, who here is Jesus. Through it all, the world might be against us. The creator of the world is with us, though, and for us. The one we have to give account to, he's the one that's come and made us right with him. It's interesting also, on the Roman coins at that time, on all of them, it said, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. On all the coins, Caesar is Lord. If you remember with the, the Pharisees of Jesus, or it might have been the Sadducees, they said, like, trying to catch him with taxes, right? And she says, well, whose face is on the coin? It's Caesar. And on it said, Caesar is Lord. But the angel says very clear, no, Jesus is is the Lord. In fact, this is the cry of the New Testament. This is the uh, like the most distinguishing mark of Jesus, or the, of a Christian. The most simplest is that it's Jesus is Lord. Peter, he proclaims this. He, even though the, the Roman citizens are saying that Caesar is Lord, the soldiers force this. Peter says in Acts 10, this is the message of peace he sent to the Israelites by proclaiming the good news to Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.9. It says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And sometimes we can bypass that quick. But in that time, that's how you showed your loyalty to Caesar. And you can be killed if you didn't say that. But if you said Jesus is Lord, you literally could be killed on the spot. So there's the good news. Jesus is born. The Savior the Christ, the Lord. And assessing ourselves, are we getting this? Jesus is not an add-on to our ambitions for a career, for money, for a bigger house, for being debt-free even. He's not an add-on to our hobbies, uh, reading, fishing, hunting, social life, whatever. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is your Lord, whether you like it or not. And guess what? It's good that He is because He's gracious and He's merciful and He's forgiving. That's the good news. Jesus has come, he is Savior, he is Christ, and he is Lord. Listen to uh, the, uh, the Nicene Creed. It states this about Jesus. It encapsulates this. It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him, all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. That's Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. There is no other Savior's. No amount of money is efficient. No amount of self-approval is efficient. No amount of land is efficient. No amount of growth is efficient. No amount of confidence is efficient. Nothing else will save you except for Jesus Christ. But Jesus will. And that's the good news. He will. If he repents, if you're sin and turn to Christ and have faith in him alone, he will save you. Martin Luther said this, as he contemplated this, he said this, When I am told... That God became man, I can follow the idea. But I just do not understand what it means. For what man, if left to his natural promptings, if he were God, would humble himself to lie in the feed box of a donkey or to hang upon a cross? 
God laid upon Christ the iniquities of us all. This is that ineffable and infinite mercy of God, which the slender capacity of man's heart cannot comprehend and much less utter, that unfathomable depth and burning zeal of God's love towards us. Who can sufficiently declare this exceeding great goodness of God? The good news. So we saw the birth, see the good news, and now the response, the last part of this. Verse 13, and suddenly, if not, if the light wasn't enough during the dark, if angels were enough, suddenly there was an angel, uh, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and singing. Who knows how loud this is? I have no idea. It could be like a rock concert for all we know. But they're saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Glory to God, they say. Why are we saved? Why does God forgive sinners? For his glory. To magnify his mercy and his grace. And that is great news for us. Because for those of us who trust in him, that means blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, mercy upon gra- mercy. That is good news that he wants to glorify himself. He says, the heavenly host praising God, this heavenly host. Heaven addresses earth about the significance of Christ. He has a lowly birth, very lowly birth, but the heavens declaring this is no simple child. He brings peace. He brings peace. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I kind of laughed. I was like, that was spectacular. Maybe we should do what they just said. Like, yeah, I agree. That would be pretty... Uh, conclusive to do but they go and it's interesting because they heard the good news and it resulted in action they heard it and they did something they trusted they went to go see this jesus who is the savior of christ the lord that news should affect our every day if jesus the good news does not affect our lives we're doing something we're doing something wrong and we need to change 16 and they went with haste and found mary and joseph and the baby lying in a manger just like the angel said and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They were evangelists. They're sharing, hey, this is what the angel said. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And so the shepherds were witnesses to this. And this, imagine, just bring assurance to Theophilus, the original reader or recipient of this letter that Luke is writing for, about assurance. What assurance we get from this? And remember, at this time, most likely... A thousand times likely, there's eyewitnesses to Jesus, possibly these very shepherds, who Theophilus could get up and go talk to him about. Tell me about what happened. Tell me about that night when the angels came. Tell me about this. There's assurance, and the shepherds are telling. And people wondered, just like when John was born, right? When Zechariah could open his mouth again, they wondered. 19, but Mary treasured up these things, pondered them in her heart. And, and this is not the first... This is, at least it's not going to be the only time that Luke adds this about Mary, that Mary pondered this. She treasured it up in his heart. How can he know this? Remember Luke in the beginning said he talked to a bunch of eyewitnesses. He went to them. And as, like he said, they were close to Jerusalem. Good chance that Luke went and talked to Mary. He, he got this information from Mary. But she's mulling this over. She remembers what Gabriel said, his announcement. She remembers that. She's mulling it over. She remembers, obviously, the shepherd's announcement. Mulling it over. Elizabeth's prophecy. Remembers that. Mulling all this over. Treasuring it up. Pottering it. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
running, skipping, right? Having a good time. They're glorifying and praising. The only appropriate response to the good news is worship. Glorifying and praising God. I mentioned this maybe two, three weeks ago. I'm not sure what it was. If we're not responding this way, there's potentially two reasons why. Number one, we're not comprehending the fullness and the completeness of the good news. Or two, we're not comprehending the fullness or completeness of the bad news. Which one are we not understanding? Are we comprehending? Finishing it up, verse 21. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So he's he's circumcised. Mary and Joseph are obedient Jews, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he's called Jesus. It's the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. Same name. Joshua, Jesus. What does it mean? Yahweh saves. God saves. How appropriate. The Savior has come. His name is that God saves. God's word has come to pass. And everything that God sent through Gabriel has come to pass. God is in complete control, even over secular rulers. And we see these responses to the good news. The angels praised God. The shepherds sought to behold Jesus. The shepherds made known the good news. Mary, she treasured these things up in her heart. The shepherds then left glorifying and praising God. And Mary and Joseph, they obeyed the word of God, circumcised Jesus, and named him Jesus. So let me bring it together. Jesus is Savior, he is Christ, and he is Lord. This is incredible good news because we're all born with a disease, and the disease is sin. And there's nothing we can do about it except for trusting in Christ. So if you have not, repent and trust in Christ alone. And as a believer, we can rejoice. Praise God. We can preach this to ourselves when we wake up and it's just like we're getting beaten down by, hey, do you remember what you did here? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Yeah, I remember that. But Christ has paid it all. He is my Savior. So back to the assessment. We hear the good news. I'm going to finish with this. If the good news has become old news to you, Ponder this. Go back to those two reasons. In my comprehending the fully the bad news, where I was at, my sin, and do I also fully comprehend the good news, that it is finished? That those things that come up to condemn me, it's done. Paul writes, Romans 8, 1, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If it's become old news to you, what have you forgotten? The good news or the bad news? If the good news has gone from the first page to the third page in your life, assess this. Why? What has changed? What was lost? What has become seemingly more important? And work to have an eternal perspective. If the good news has become fake news, cry out to God to open your eyes, to give you faith. Be in God's word to hear his truth. Reach out, please, reach out to me or to one of the elders. And lastly, if the good news has just become news that we have virtual signal on Facebook or whatever, and it doesn't affect any other area of our lives, what has changed in your perspective that reduced the Lordship of Christ to just that? What pushed the Lordship of Christ out of all these other areas of your life 
and put them in this one area that this can only be affected here. So let's assess ourselves, and after assessment, let us proclaim the good news. Yup, I stink. That's true. I probably physically do. I'm sweating right now. But in other ways, yes. Morally, yes. But Jesus is Savior. He is Christ, and he's Lord. And for that, I'm free. I'm free. And so this morning, we, we are going to proclaim that here as we take the Lord's Supper together. So I'm going to ask the, the deacons to come forward at this time.